I'm Tony Lombardi with Russell Street Report, and welcome into a special edition of The Front Office, brought to you by Royal Farms. Start each morning with a hot, fresh cup of Royal Farms coffee. It's made one cup at a time from the finest coffee beans in the world. During the spring of 2015, I had this idea for a series of articles, and admittedly, it was a total lift from ESPN's outstanding series of documentaries, 30 for 30. As the Ravens prepared for what would be their 20th season in Baltimore, I thought it would be a good idea to ask writers at Russell Street Report and some journalists who have covered the Ravens to tell a memorable story from their experiences with the team. We called the series 20 for 20, and I encourage you to check it out on Russell Street Report. While preparing the series, I thought to reach out to Steve Bishotti to see if he would be interested in telling the story of how he acquired the team, a story that I did not believe was properly told up to that point. Steve agreed to meet with me in his office at the castle for the interview on June 16, 2015. Up to this point, I've only presented the transcribed version of the interview. Recently, when he broke his silence with the media, it inspired me to revisit the audio version. What you'll hear from Steve is honesty, intelligence, and thoughtfulness as he addresses things such as how he became the owner, the difference between winning Super Bowl 35 and 47, his future outlook for himself and the team, plus a few other interesting things. By the time you reach the end of the interview, I'm sure you'll see Steve for the visionary he is, and you'll realize that a lot can change in nearly seven years. I hope you enjoy this discussion, the first time it has ever been made publicly available. I want to start off with knowing that you're an NFL fan and you grew up as a Colts fan. And when the Colts left, did you adopt a new team while the Colts were out of, of town for 12 seasons? And if so, who, the, who was that team? Um, I grew up hating the Redskins, and I didn't really adopt any team. Um, but I was kind of forced in the Redskins for a couple reasons. Renee's dad was a Redskins fan, and he had season tickets and of course they went for years and years I met Renee in 82 we got married in 84 and the Colts left so it was at that time that Renee's brother was 10 years younger so he was 14 I was 24 and her dad asked me a couple times would I take Jason to the Redskins games because um, <clears throat> he was busy and it was like you know he just wanted Jason to keep going so I took Jason to a couple. Then into the early 90s, I was being offered tickets from other people and I took my boys. One of them was specifically fairly close to, my boys weren't babies, um, uh, to a Redskins-Lions playoff game. And uh, so I just wanna say by that time, I didn't hate them. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't passionate about them, but I remember coming home from um, like golf on Sunday mornings and I'd turn the TV on and there might be two games on because I, in Annapolis, I could get the Washington Station. Right. So I would have my choice of the two. Um, it wasn't, it wouldn't always be the Redskins, but um, so, yeah, I, I certainly didn't become a fan, but I didn't, like, go leap and find another team. I just got exposed to the Redskins a little bit. And, and uh, you know, at the time, they had uh, a lot of guys to like, yeah. you know. 
with uh, Theismann and, and uh, the the uh, fun bunch, the wide receivers and stuff like that. So can't do those things anymore in the end zone. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it can't be fun. <laughs> so fast forward a little bit to 1995 and the news breaks that Art Modell is moving the Cleveland Browns to Baltimore. Where were you when you heard that announcement, and what was your first reaction to that? Oh, gosh, I don't know where I was. <laughs> um, you know, again, I was, I was just knee-deep in building a business and raising kids. And um, so, <clears throat> you know, I immediately was, I had put up money. I was on a short list because I had put up the money for the expansion team. And after we didn't get the expansion team in 93, they wrote a passionate letter to all these people that had put up maybe $5,000 or something um, and said, would you please keep the money there so we can still show the NFL that we're interested? And I thought, well, it's a down payment. What do I care? So I left the money there. So I was the first group of people to get the glossy brochure thing to pick tickets and everything. And... Uh, uh, I remember not getting the tickets that I wanted because they had given out, for anybody that bought a suite, they also had first priority of the club level. So by the time I got called, when I was being told you'd get the first shot of tickets, then I was all the way down to like the 30-yard line on, in the club level, and I was furious. I called Roy Summerhoff and gave him a load, and uh, I said, you know, you, you lied to us. You said that we'd get the first crack. And then that's what it turned out, that all the people that were buying the suites were getting the first crack at any other tickets. And they kind of used, filled up that 35 to 35. Maybe I was on like the 35-yard line. And uh, so I bought four tickets in the club, four in the upper level, four in the lower level. And uh, took my boys to the very first game against Oakland at Memorial Stadium. And it was such a cluster that I just said, I'm never going back until the new stadium is built, and I didn't. Really? It was terrible. I had little boys. I remember going to the bathroom, and the lines were so long. Then I got the kids out of the bathroom and sent, I think, Renee to the seats with the boys. I waited all the way in line to get a drink, and they were only serving Cokes, not beers, or beers, not Cokes. And I was, like, trying to get four at the same time, and uh, I, I literally lost an entire quarter from the bathroom and then the two lines to get the beers and the Cokes, or I didn't get beers and I got four Cokes and just said, screw it, and, and then went out, they had parked our cars like they used to do at Memorial Stadium, bumper to bumper to bumper across, Crazy. you know, and, uh, and I just said, no way, I'll just wait, and so I did. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways the the stadium, the organization, and the fans had to learn how to be NFL fans again. It took a little while. And just logistics and, and operationally trying to get that stadium up and going for 70,000 people was, or whatever it was back then. What was it, 55,000? Yeah, 60 maybe. I don't know. But, so now you're, you're a season ticket holder. You're not going to the games. And I want to back it up to 1983. We, we, kind of having that thought linger for a second. The, in 83, you start your business yeah. with your cousin Jim Davis, yeah. Aerotech, and in the basement of your home. Yeah. 17 years later, you own 49% of the Baltimore Ravens. 
that had to be some kind of 16 years later. Okay, whirlwind, whirlwind tour. Yeah. Talk about starting that business, the evolution of that business, and then at what point in time did you start to think, I'd like to be involved in owning a sports team? That just came to me. I had, I had, you know, been working 70 hours a week and, and it was my priority and, and uh, raising the kids was my wife's priority. I was traveling and opening up offices all over and got to the point in like 1997 or 8 that 1997 I went to Jimmy and just said, you know, I need to promote John to president, John Kerry to president because I can't be the first one in and the last one to leave. I can't keep traveling like I am. I had older kids. They were about. They were a little older than I was when me and my, my brother and I were when my dad died in 69. And I just said, you know, I, I just need John to, to step into this role. He's ready. He's been with us since the beginning. And I need to kind of go, quote, part-time. But it wasn't really part-time. It just felt like I, need, I needed to reward John. He was qualified to do the job, and I was getting to the point where I just didn't want to give miss more of my kids' lives by traveling as much as I was. Um, and so, but then you find out quickly when you're home, when the kids come home from school, the last thing they want to do is hang out with their dad. Right. You know what I mean? They want to they want to go with to Johnners and play video games, or they want to go you know, building a fort in the woods or something. And so uh, it, it just, it was good for me because I really felt like I was getting off the merry-go-round a little bit. And then it was about that time that Bank of America, who was well aware of my success, more so than anybody in Baltimore, came to me with a thing and said, or would you be interested in looking at the uh, Miami Mar uh, the uh, Florida Marlins? And I was like, wow, that's intriguing. I said, sure, I would. Almost just out of curiosity. So they made me sign a you know, confidentiality agreement and gave me the prospectus. And I went home and my wife was like, what are you doing? And, and I, you know, you're an Oriole fan since you were a baby. And I said, it's a, a National League team and it's in Florida. And you know we're going to end up spending half our life in Florida. So it wouldn't be competing with the Orioles. So it's the only team other than the Orioles that I'd be interested in because it's National League and it's, and it's in, in a state that I planned on spending a lot of time in. And uh, anyway, that turned out to fall through. Uh, has any given um, John Henry too much of, uh, is it John Henry, his name? The owner of the Marlins? Yeah, well, well he, he was, Heisinger was the owner of the Marlins. He was the president who is now the Boston Red Sox guy. Okay. Um, and so, Heisinger had given him first right of refusal to go out and get a deal, but he was trying to get too much equity for not enough money. And so Jimmy Davis said, this is a terrible deal. This is all in his favor. So I walked away from it. Then sometime in early 99 or whatever, they came to me and said, how about the Minnesota Vikings? They're going to go really cheap. They've got a bad lease, but it's a, you could make a lot of money on it. And I went home and my wife was like, you're out of your mind. This is crazy. Like, we're going to go to Minnesota and on Sundays. So I didn't even look at the prospectus. I just called him back and said, no, I wasn't interested. Well, John Moog had a little brother, Brendan, that worked for me. So John Moog, again, was one of the few people that kind of knew how big we were and how much, how, how, how successful we were. And he called me out of the blue. I didn't know him. And he said, I'm 
John Moe, um, uh, I work with Leg Mason Sports Industry Group, and I said, well, I remember your name. You were head of the Maryland Stadium Authority that brought the team, and he said, I'd like to talk to you. So he came, and uh, we talked for 45 minutes. I called Jimmy in, and he went through a little bit of the spiel, and uh, I forget what it was, but it was like, well, I'll come back in a week. So I called Bank of America and said, I'd be interested in doing this. At the time, they were only selling 25%. And I, Jimmy and I said, well, we wouldn't do it. You know, I wouldn't do it. Um, not for, for minority in perpetuity. And so that's when John Moe kind of said, well, then let's go at him with an option. Let's go at him and say, we'll consider it, but you want an option to buy the whole team. And really, that, it was John Moe that, that was, gets a lot of credit for working the deal. And then Models came back when they realized that nobody was going to buy 25% and just stay a minority, that I was serious, that I had the money, and then they came back to me and said, well, you'd have to meet our price and you'd have to buy 49% right away, not 25%, because if we were going to give you an option, we may as well cash out as much as we can, meaning at 49 right. And so that's kind of the way we did it. Art wanted five years, I wanted three, we settled on four, and that's how it happened. Interesting. So I mean, I literally made the, I made the presentation, Bank of America, Dick Cass, and a, and a uh, uh, guy from uh, Price Waterhouse in Atlanta who also had team experience um, made my team up and we went and presented to the Models. I think it was December 17th or 19th or something, 1999. Um, and that was probably two weeks um, after John had walked into my office. So I can honestly say that that's how much time I had, two weeks. That's fast. That's fast. Or something like that. Yeah. So, so then the 2000 season becomes your first season. Yeah. And you guys go on to win the Super Bowl your first year. Now, if you, you've been part of two Super Bowl wins and certainly have something to be proud of in 15 years in ownership. But looking back, what do you remember most about each one of those Super Bowl uh, championships? And of the two, is there's one nearer or dearer to your heart? Well, sure. I, I mean, the second one's obviously nearer and dearer. I think I made a comment when I was being interviewed down at the thing. If I win this, I've won two. If I lose this, I've won none. Oh, yeah. Right. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Like I, 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 there, obviously, anybody that was a friend or an advisor of mine was saying, they don't win without your money. A week after I, you know, we did the deal, they signed Shannon Sharp, and then they signed Sam Adams, and, and so I watched them put together a team that they didn't have the money to put together. So clearly, my money had something to do with the 2000 win. Um, but having zero say, barely knowing these people, I was really along for the ride. And so I really never felt like it was mine. Um, Although I sure enjoyed having a ring, right? You know, I didn't really feel like I had earned it, and so yeah, that was um, that was my feeling a few years ago was that I could legitimize the first one maybe a little more if I won a second, but if I didn't, then I would still have a, a very empty feeling almost as much. Personally, I was proud that Baltimore had a had a championship where the the Eagles and a lot of teams did. So I really, I wasn't obscuring it for the Baltimore, I just was for me personally, I guess. I just didn't feel like I could take any credit for that. 
Well, I mean, you're saying that doesn't surprise me in the sense that you maintained a low profile as while you were running Aerotech. And like you said, Bank of America knew about your success. John Moog's uh, nephew or whatever yeah. knew about your Little success. Brother. But you kind of kept a low profile to begin with. And, and you kind of maintained that until you, the models were ready to mm -hmm. leave and, and pass it over to you. So that, that's certainly admirable. Now, in looking back, the championships aside, are there any moments that really resonate with you that might have nothing to do with winning or losing on the field? Yeah, like maybe opening up this facility because that was a ragtag place that they were working in for four years. I remember I was an intern with the Colts and I remember working in that place. Yeah, yeah. and then, you know, 15 years later, it's a bigger operation in 96 than it is in, in 84, right. you know? So we were stuffed to the gills in 96. So by the time I got there in 2000, it was even worse, and then it got even worse in those four years until we moved in here. So I was able to focus a lot of my attention on building this thing up and the thrill of, I think where they were, David was on Redwood Street, the people were at the stadium stuffed right. in those offices, and the, so there were three distinct different places that, that they, we were running the team out of. And so it gave me great pleasure to bring that all under one roof and see accountants sitting next to players. And it really gave the whole organization a sense of why they're doing what they're doing. Because I can tell you down in, in Baltimore, you had no interaction with players. Okay. So you may as well been a marketing firm or something like that, you know? So I know it meant a lot to the people that had grinded through those uh, less than ideal, you know, uh, physical plant. Uh, living, you know, arrangements. Right. So that was one of the, the moments that resonated, just bringing everybody together into the building. Now, it, it, you look back at an organization and even an individual football player's career, but in terms of your career, when you look back so far with the Ravens and you think of the successes and failures, because they'll say that character is really defined not when you succeed, but when you fail and how you deal with that failure. What, are, what might be one of those moments within the organization since you've been here that you guys maybe stumbled and failed, but you recovered in a way that made you even stronger and better, whether that be on the field or off the field? Nothing on the field. I mean, the Ray Rice situation last year certainly tested us all. And, uh, you know, in some quarters we got good grades and some quarters we got bad grades, but we did it together. We made those decisions, right or wrong, together. And um, are we stronger because of it? No, because I feel like we were very strong then. Are we wiser? Yeah, I think that, that it exposed uh, 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 a blind spot, not only on a team level, but at the league level. Um, and so that's really been the only trying time that we had. Um, and then the only other major transition was obviously replacing Brian and hiring John, you know. I mean, that was, that was, uh, I knew that it was on in my lap at that time when I made that decision that I was going to move on from Brian. It was scary, and, um, but I felt like I was up for it. Why was it scary? 
Well, because you're now putting yourself in the record book, so to speak, in the history book, so to speak, you know. Um, uh, from, from 2000 to 2004, I didn't have power. From 2004 to 2007, I didn't make any changes. And um, so, you know, it's a, it's a major change when you're telling a, football, uh, a Super Bowl winning coach that, uh, you know, you're ready to try something different. Now, what was it about John? Because I know when I first heard his name mentioned, and you have this lightning rod of a head coach in Brian Billick, who was just, you know, to me, the defining moment for him was really how he took it on the chin for the team yeah. in a, that whole Super Bowl um, uh, run. But when you have a lightning rod like that, robust kind of guy, a Bill Cower kind of guy, and then you go to a guy who essentially very few people knew. Yeah. What about him? during that process made you think that this well, was... Well, remember, not a lot of people knew who Brian Billick was either when he came here. So he brought a personality that was genuinely his. Um, so I don't see that much difference. What Brian became was the CEO of, uh, of an organization, the front man of an organization. And the coach really always should be the front man to an organization. Um, I didn't see a wallflower when we were interviewing John Harbaugh. And eight years later, you see a guy that is his own man, has his own style, but he's, he's pretty fiery himself, you know? So um, he was a little less accomplished than Brian Billick was when Brian got the job. You know, if Brian hadn't gotten our job, he probably would have gotten another job. So clearly he was more accomplished with what he had done with the Vikings, but, um, you know, with Randall Cunningham and Randy Moss and Chris Carter and building that offense right. all the way to the NFC Championship game that they probably should have been in our Super Bowl instead of the Giants. That's right. Right? That's right. Now, you talk about bringing on John and, and dialing it back to 2004, 2007, where you say you made no changes. And, and since John's come along, there's been a little attrition, guys maybe move, moving on to promotions with other organizations, sure. which I'm sure you would encourage, but for the most part, you've had a lot of continuity yeah. with the organization, and that, it, I mean, I think that that helps to build the strength of your, your organization. Yeah. And what, it, since you've come along, and now that you're in the mix, what do you, and now these guys have worked together a long time, they have chemistry, they have camaraderie, they enjoy working together, and they get better at it every year, they're always looking to see what did, can I do better instead of what did I do well, if that makes sense. So with, with you in the mix, what do you think that you've brought to that front office that, that takes them to a new level? Well, it, 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 again, it comes back to picking somebody that I felt we could grow with for a long period of time. So when you said what was scary about it, it was that. If I got on that higher coach, it blows up. You know, we don't recover and we go back, what were we, 5-11 that year when I fired Brian? And what if two years later I'm replacing the next coach? And what if two years later I'm replacing? Sometimes once you don't get it right, it can continue to spiral. And so continuity is something that I had in my own organization and credited it for us being better than our competition. And so I was just going on with the only blueprint I knew, and that was take people that I felt uh, had high character and were looking for an opportunity to be great. Um, 
a la John Kerry and Mike Salandra, the guys that ultimately ended up running my business for the last 15 years since I've been gone. And they were two of my very first hires. And so um, I knew that I needed somebody. And when Ozzy and Dick and Kevin and John, I mean, and Dick and, and, and Kevin and Eric and Pat and all these guys were interviewing him, there was just this sense that we had known him for a long time. It was like, I can't explain it, but you know, it's kind of that same feeling when you fall in love, where you just project and think, I can, I can, I can live with that smile for the next 30 years. And it's interesting, you all felt that chemistry with We him. all did, yeah. And um, yeah. So when you say, what did I bring to it? I, I, I think that maybe my interview skills, my people skills, and, and my judge of character got us to a point where I found somebody that I thought Ozzy could live with, Ozzy could work with. And obviously that proves in the pudding, you know. Now when you think of the Ravens organization, you, you can't help but think of this guy, Ray Lewis. And doing one of those Ravens rap shows we did in Ocean City, Miss Marlene Petruska, she asked you in her dainty little way, she said, when Ray Lewis retires, and this was, goes back a few years, when Ray Lewis retires, will you have a place for him in your organization? And here's what she said, because I'll never forget these words, and I made sure to make a little, actually, poster out of this. You said, I think Ray Lewis transcends a position in our organization. If he ever needs it, he's got it. But I don't think that he'll ever need it. I think that Ray is on to bigger and better things, and I think that his heart is such that he would rather move people. He can make his money in speaking engagements and endorsements, but his heart is bigger than his will. And I really believe that he's going to be someone that you're more proud of being in the world than being in our organization 20 years from now. You said that a few years ago. Fast forward to today. Where do you think Ray is? Is he where you thought he would be, or is he further along? Or yeah, would you rather have anybody else in the middle of Baltimore, in the middle of those riots? No. I mean, that kind of says it all, right? You know, you can talk about ESPN. They're paying them more than I pay linebacker coaches. So, you know, and, he, and he's free to, to explore dozens of business opportunities all at that same time with that job that is not a full-time job. I really Coaching thought that part of that that really resonated with me was being out in the world it's almost like in a parental way you feel an attachment to him that he's out there doing those things. Yeah, I, I figured that he had a higher ceiling, honestly, than, right. than, than this, you know. Um, I, I just didn't, see, I, I didn't see us being able to tap all of his energy and vision in a coaching position. I would agree. I didn't think it was... Uh, I thought that would be beneath him. Now, I'm going to read a quote that was said about you. It says, Steve is a great leader. The players love him. They love when he's around. He's an inspiration to all of our guys, to me, to this organization. He sets the tone here. It's a great organization because of his vision. That was from John Harbaugh. Now, with that in mind, I want to test this vision a little bit. And I want to ask a few things. We'll wrap up. Um, 
since we're doing this 20 for 20 and we're celebrating the Ravens 20th season, looking ahead using that vision, what is your vision for Joe Flacco? I don't think that anybody in the NFL uh, appreciates Joe Flacco more than we do in the Ravens. Um, He has been maligned and ridiculed for being average for seven years. And yet he has some stats that put him when we talk about the postseason with the all-time greats. Um, I believe that Joe at 30 can still win a couple Super Bowls. I think he will. And I hope that he gets an opportunity to do what Nelway does, although Elway wasn't sitting on one when he won his last two. You know, you always hope, just like Ray Lewis, that he's the one that calls us and says, this is my last year. You know, because I know Ray could have played one more year. He just would have been playing at what would be considered a mere mortal status, an average linebacker. And uh, the, the fact that he got to go out on top is something that, as a fan and a supporter of Joe, I hope he wins another in the next few years, and I hope he wins another at 38 years old and says, sayonara. I hope that uh, we don't have to see him in San Diego like we saw Johnny Yu. For a quick question on Ray, though, since you brought him up, the do you think he comes back if you don't win the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. No. No. When he when he called me to tell me, Renee and I were in the Bahamas, and uh, he called me and said, "I need to talk to you." And he told me what he was doing. I remember saying to him. I don't, he told me that he didn't want to tell the team for about a month. So he told us right when he came back for the playoffs, right? He announced it a week before. I think it was just leading into the playoffs. Yeah, so not before he played that Colts game. Right. And he had told me that about four weeks earlier. And I said, do me, number one, (laughs) you know, it is between us. And he had talked to John, Ozzie, and me. And, um, and I said, just do me a favor, leave yourself, by us keeping it quiet, you have a month to decide before you tell the players. Because I have been in your position, meaning retiring, when I retired, so to speak, from Aerotech, when I realized I couldn't give 110% of my effort and focus to that company. And they deserved 
and I said, if it's going to be a month, we'll keep it close and it'll give you an opportunity to change your mind because you, you have to acknowledge that this is a terrible time to make this decision when you are grinding back the way you have to come back from an injury that would have sidelined people for 10 months and you're trying to do it in 10 weeks or whatever, not 10 months, five months or whatever. But I said, being, being unable to play the game puts these guys in a terrible position. Cap Lewis and Brett Urban and these guys that go out, they're ready, and then boom, see you in a year. Mm -hmm. And they're just kind of excommunicated. Now, it's different with Ray because he was the heart and soul of the team. But all I was trying to say to him is they are such disparate, emotional um, uh, uh, things that you're dealing with. You are pushing to come back while you're saying that you're going to go away. And I was scared that there could be conflicts in his resolution that might appear closer to getting healthy enough to come back. And um, I said, so I want you to at least, it, it never happened if you changed, changed your mind three weeks from now when you're close to coming back, if you think you're going to be able to come back. And he said, I will be there. But um, I'll keep. I'll. I'll heed your advice, and I'll. And I'll. Won't tell anybody, and I won't tell you know Ed Reed or anybody else for right now. Although I do think he might have told Ed, um, and had kept it quiet because I really do think the players were were shocked when he told them. Um, I didn't hear any rumblings about it, you know. So everybody was just anticipating: Is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? Is he going to be healthy enough to come back? And so I think he. We did keep it as quiet as can be and I just wanted to make sure that he, he would not have announced that then we lose and then say okay I got one more year in, in me right and he said to me be a Brett Favre yeah and he said to me um, right before he announced it he said uh, or it might have been that night he said you have to understand that while I've been training and recovering 20 hours a day I realized that I can't do it anymore I can't come back from another injury I and I won't take a chance of getting of walking away hurt but I know through this rehab that I can't do it again. And so I'm protecting myself against that inevitability because if I came back next year and got hurt, I would have to walk away because I'm 100% convinced that I can't do what I'm doing right now. And that, that clarified to me that it wasn't disparate thoughts, that it was, it was formed off of the experience that he was going through. And he didn't want to walk off the field a, a, a limping and, and never to be seen again. Right. You know? And the way he handled it, too, in the organization, it allowed the team to galvanize around it mm -hmm. instead of being fractured. Mm -hmm. So, Okay, back to your vision. M&T Bank Stadium. What do you see going forward with M&T Bank Stadium? Well, I mean, you, you were talking, you're doing a 20 for 20. Um, the fact that we've been in that stadium 18 years is 
crazy. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's crazy to me. Um, there will never be um, another place for a stadium. You know, that, that Camden Yards complex is what Baltimore was made for that. No question and, about it. Just and, everything around it. So the idea that you could ever move that anywhere is preposterous. So we're going to be faced with um, needing some major renovations. And I think Dick has done a great job and the Maryland Stadium Authority has done a great job coming together and, and helping us. I think we put $35 million into renovations over the last three years and Maryland Stadium Authority has kicked in like a third of that money and and the Ravens have done the rest and um, you know they're probably the one thing that the one thing that we need that would take a lot of money that we can't just do in an offseason is escalators to the upstairs I I wish we had them um, uh, half our fans are up there and I think it would be a lot easier. We for hear them. that all the time too. When are they going to put escalators? Yeah, all the time. But you know, in order to do escalators and in order to do more bathrooms and all that stuff, you're really looking at taking the stadium and building out from it to make the footprint bigger. You can't just keep stuffing things within the confines of the the original footprint. And you know you see these stadiums costing a billion to build now, and we put, you know they they built that one 18 years ago for 200 million. Mm -hmm. So in the next 12 years, you know I, my my lease is up in 12 years, and so you know we are going to have to work with the state and make sure that we keep it up uh, to a level that it probably would only need one big renovation in order to catapult it back to a top 10 stadium. And I kind of think it probably still is, although most every other stadium, you know, half of them have been built since ours has. I'm not jealous of other stadiums. You know, we don't need a dome in Baltimore. Um, I wouldn't want a dome, you know, the, the retractable domes might be great for the city, like a convention center is great for a city, and that you could then have 200 things there other than football. NCAA basketball. Too. Sure, and it would be wonderful for the city if, the, if, if that was in our long, long-term future. But, uh, you know, 10 years, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to own this team until the day I die. And so if I end up selling the team... 10 years from now, and there's two years left on the lease, it's going to create a tough situation for Baltimore with a new owner that would have leverage um, over, over the team, over Baltimore, that I might not exercise myself. I don't see myself, I'm 55, I don't see myself being the 65-year-old guy that's threatening to move the team if he doesn't get a new stadium. So, um, if, if I think that we have to make progress every year and then maybe have a long-term plan to do one major renovation, 
that's done 10 years from now so that we can sign another 30-year lease and secure this thing till way past after I die and sell the team. The vision for the NFL, are there, do you have, what would you think would be some of the opportunities that excite you for the NFL and what are some of your biggest concerns? I, I see so many intelligent people in the NFL from 32 owners to the, to the league office. Um, I don't, I don't uh, really have any worries about the future of the NFL, the income streams. Um, I think that kind of solves itself. I don't really have much um, to say, uh, you know, we've dealt with the concussion lawsuit and, and, and of course this domestic violence issue is uh, front and foremost in the last year. Um, uh, I just don't see anything major uh, changing again, certainly in my lifetime. Um, uh, the the appointment TV that the NFL has become as the as you know TV viewing has become more fractured and, and I'm sure uh, like me you watch most of your shows uh, you know on demand in one on demand in one way shape or form but you know if somebody recommends a great show and says I can't believe it you haven't watched it since season three so you tell your wife to go buy season one and two and, right, right. and then you and then you watch it in three months right, you right. know and you watch two seasons I yeah. did that with Sons of Anarchy I watched eight years and four months did, I did every one of them The Wire Sopranos Sons of Anarchy Breaking Bad you know all of them so um, now I'm on Lily Hammer and uh, Ray Donovan so Donovan I'm starting to get into in the, uh, Game of Thrones and they've all said you, you got to do it so that'll be my one when when you know Renee's watching uh, uh, Top Chef or Gordon Ramsay or whatever then but, I'll, I'll get into one but you're right it is is how you consume that content now is all fractured and it's mm -hmm. going to continue I guess to get more and more fractured and and you know we we've heard doom over uh, you know Sunday night games and Thursday night games and it just, they never come to fruition. You know, we have an appetite for sports in general in America and nobody, nobody, you know, nobody TVOs them. They, I mean, it's there. And so the advertisers, uh, uh, we're not becoming obsolete. If anything, we're becoming a stronger brand as far as appointment TV. Yeah, with the sports for sure. Now, um, in 20 years, the Ravens have won, this being the 20th season, so in 19 years, two world championships. Since you've come along and since John Harbaugh has been along, six out of seven years in the playoffs. And I remember us having a conversation years back about the opening and closing of windows. And, and so that's, that's been an accomplishment for you guys. Look ahead to the next 20 years. Uh, what can fans expect, not so much in wins and losses, but in terms of how the team will be managed while you're around, and and what might lie in store 
what might we be talking about 20 years from now about the Baltimore Ravens when we do a 40 for 40? Uh, that's, that's a good question, Tony, because again, I, I've always left that end of the, the, I've always left that open for me. Um, I don't know that I'll be the owner 20 years from now. Um, it does take a lot out of you. And um, I don't know that, that I'm uh, here when I'm 75. Um, I really like to focus on, and, I, and, and you know, right now it's like I'd hire John Harbaugh tomorrow, so I don't see anything. I'd like to talk about the next 10 years. I want Ozzy to stay as long as he wants. I think it's uh, well documented that Eric is happy and patient, God bless him, to wait to, uh, uh, to um, you know, take over for Ozzy. Um, and, you know, so I, I'm kind of looking at Ozzy, Joe, and John kind of being secure here for the next eight or ten years. And so I'm really happy to be sitting here and saying I don't have major upheaval in my future. And, um, you know, I think it's pretty cool if uh, if we can win a couple more and we're you know eight years out and it's still the same guys sitting on that stage when it comes to the quarterback and the head coach and the, and the GM, absolutely, yeah, good stuff. Thank you.